0: Well, good morning, Covenant Church. It's good to be with you again this morning. Thank you, uh, Praise Team, for uh, introducing that song uh, to us this morning. In fact, several of the songs that we sang just uh, interweave with the message and with the text that we will be on this morning uh, so well. You know, we're in our third message of four that are coming from Luke chapter 8, four stories that deal with uncertainty and the fear and the, and the consequences of going through situations of uncertainty in our lives. You know, we, we started with the men, the disciples and Jesus on the lake and that storm that they experienced. And then last week, uh, we uh, saw Jesus interacting with a demoniac and how uncertainty can come into our lives because of spiritual bondages and oppressions that take place. Well, well this morning, our, our message centers on this trembling woman, right? We've had the, the, the disciples in their storm, and then this demoniac, and now we have this woman Who I love the word trembling that is in this passage, and it's uncertainty that comes about from loneliness and isolation. So I'm going to pick up in our passage in verse 40, and and actually the story begins by giving us... Uh, introducing us to another man and realize what's happened. Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee. There was a storm on the sea. They come through it. They they land on the other side. They are in a Gentile area. They interact with this man who's possessed by legions of spiritual uh, entities. And now they've come back across the lake and they land. And the minute they get off the shore, they're met by a man. And so we have this story beginning with the, the introduction to a guy by the name of Jairus, who we're going to dig into his story next week, but there's an interruption. And that's the focus of the message this morning with this woman. So beginning in Luke chapter eight, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus's feet. He implored him to come to his house For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people, uh, in presence of all the people, why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus said to her, "'Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace.'" Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we are able to come together and and worship you and sing and celebrate your greatness and now hear from you through your word. We ask, Lord, to be with our church, with our community, the people of our nation Uh, Some have been touched so greatly by the coronavirus and are suffering physically or even grieving. Uh, Others of us, Lord, our lives have obviously been interrupted and the rhythms of our lives are very different now. We pray that you would give your hand of healing on those who are afflicted, that you would heal our nation, that you would use this time of trial and tribulation and plague to, to cause men and women everywhere to look to you and ask questions that need to be asked and find those answers in Jesus Christ. Be with us this morning as we go into your word. Lord, speak to us. And may your spirit control the words that come out of my mouth. May the message do great blessing and benefit to those who hear it. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You know, this week, uh, I was touched in particular by a story that I saw Uh, Online, as I was reading some of the newspapers and news uh, organizations. Uh, There was a woman by the name of Dr. Lorna Breen and her story just really touched me as as I saw that she was the head of the emergency department for uh, the New York Presbyterian Allen Hospital in New York City. Uh, A deeply religious spiritual lady by all accounts, a a phenomenal uh, doctor, a loving family, a very full life. Uh, because of her being on the front line, she contracted the coronavirus, came through it, and then went tried to go back to work, but was still uh, suffering from it. Um, and, this, and what she's experienced over the last couple of months, uh, it, it, she took her own life, and she committed suicide this week. And the family is is devastated as they see that, you know, not all of the casualties of of the coronavirus are just people who succumb to the disease. It's many people who are having to experience this time. And here's this woman with a wonderful life representing many of the millions of healthcare workers and the trauma that they've experienced. And it just became too much for her by her own words to see these people just dying, even before she could get them out of the ambulance. And uh, you know, most of us, we haven't necessarily been touched by the COVID-19 uh, in that quite that way. We're not on the front lines like that. Some of us maybe have, but I don't know of anybody really in our church who has been so directly affected at the physical health level by the coronavirus. But certainly we understand what it's like to go through times of uncertainty due to a medical condition, whether it's coronavirus or something else. And we've either had that happen to us or we've lived through it vicariously because of the experiences of maybe our family members or a good friend or a neighbor or coworker. And so whether it's coronavirus or perhaps it's cancer, or it's some kind of disease that is so debilitating that you're no longer able to work, no longer to be able to be employed, to to interact with society in the normal ways that you do because your health has been so greatly affected that as a consequence, your life takes a drastic change. Um, Instead of all the vitality and vigor of life, now there's uncertainty and there's loneliness. There's isolation. We're experiencing it in a small way right now through the quarantining and the self-isolation that we have to do. But there's some even in our own church who long before COVID are having to quarantine, essentially, who are having to be isolated and alone because of the consequences of physical maladies. So when we read of this woman in Luke chapter 8, I think most of us in one way or another, we can identify with her on a number of levels. Certainly the uncertainty and the fear that she had in her life. As we read this story, we can easily imagine why it would so dominate her life. You know, Luke is a physician. He's doctor. Luke. And in verse 43, when he describes the, the woman's condition, it, it really comes across like a doctor's, you know, objective analysis. She she spent everything that she had, and there was no cure for her issue, right? I mean, it's just a, a blunt, very objective statement. It, spent everything, no cure. Man, it's, you know, and then it moves on, right? Well, well Peter is a little more emotional. Peter is a little more invested, he's not a doctor. And, and through his protege, Mark, we get a different reading of, w- of what was going on here. And it's a good reading for us to fill in some blanks and see how this dominated her life. Uh, it, it says in verse 25 of Mark chapter five, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, now listen how Peter describes it, who had suffered much, under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. You know, it's almost like he's advocating she call Morgan and Morgan or something, right? Because this was not working and she was in desperate conditions. You know, there was a a doctor, uh, Dr. Lewis Wall, who was the a professor of obstetrics and gynecology and also a professor of anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis. And he studied this story and, and, and his conclusion was that this woman either had some kind of tumors within her or more likely she suffered from a malady known as anovulation and so anovulation is a hormonal imbalance that disrupts the uh the normal uh ovulation and the monthly cycle that women experience and it results in essentially more cycles within a month and as an irregular bleeding that will happen on a on throughout a month's time and pretty soon what happens is that the lining of the uterus becomes to quote Dr. Wall, thin, raw and denuded, a chronic weeping sore. And so this is this woman's physical malady and it's, it's very difficult and it has all kinds of impacts in her life, physical and spiritual, social and emotional impacts. You can imagine what that would be like physically. She is an anemic. Uh, she, is, she is debilitated. Uh, She is discouraged. Um, She's fatigued. She's worn out. Uh, She's probably a little grumpy, right? (laughs) And and worse, and the most meaningful impact is that she's infertile. She can't have children. Uh, And so as a result, spiritually, um, she's in a desperate situation. Leviticus chapter 15 detailed for uh, us what women in uh, the Jewish world had to go through as just part of their normal monthly cycle, they, were, they had to go outside the, the camp or outside the city into an area of isolation until they could finish that time and then go through a cleansing ceremony. ceremony. This was a normal part of their life. And this, this monthly obligation before God that was associated with this cycle was, was intentional. It was a, a physical object lesson, like I referred to a couple of weeks ago, how God through the physical world will try to communicate to us the consequences, the impact the severity of sin. And we see this in different ways. And, and that was the purpose behind this law in Leviticus chapter 15. It was, it was meant to remind us of sin, of corruption, and how sin separates us from God and from the people of God and how we need cleansing and purification and salvation. And so there was a, a real spiritual reason behind this kind of law in Leviticus. Now, the rabbis had taken this and they had run with it in the Mishnah, right? So they would say, for example, that if you sat, if a a woman in this type of situation or even a woman experiencing her normal monthly cycle, if she sat on a rock, right? And underneath that rock were 100 garments, all 100 garments were now unclean and you couldn't wear them until they had been ceremonially cleaned. If you got into a boat, and, and that boat tilted a certain way. Now the boat was unclean and everything, everybody who was in the boat was now unclean and would become unclean until the boat had been, uh, had been cleansed. Essentially, anything a woman touched sat on, laid on, pressed in upon, was made spiritually, ceremonially unclean. And if anybody touched it, they were now unclean and they had to go to the temple or to the synagogue and go through the cleansing purification ceremonies before they could interact with society again. So there was a huge social impact here to this woman because she was consistently in this state of existence. So for example, her marriage, her husband couldn't touch her. If her husband touched her, if she was married at all, he was now unclean. In fact, as a result of this kind of malady, he would have been justified according to the rabbis to divorce her and to find another a wife. And of course, a huge impact socially was that she had no children because she was infertile with no children to a woman. This was devastating because like today, ladies, you outlive us guys most of the time. And the social security system of that day was your children. And to not have children meant that your future was bleak indeed. And then from another aspect of this, besides children and your husband, society at large, you are a pariah. You see, in that world at that time, you were viewed with suspicion. If you had this kind of a malady, ongoing uh, issue, there's something wrong with you at the deepest levels, and the evidence that that God is punishing you and judging you is that you have something like this. Remember Job? When Job had everything that he had happened to him, his really good friends, you know, friends like that who needs enemies, they come to him and they, they blame him for sin and say, you obviously are guilty before God or this would never have happened to you. So you need to repent and you need to figure out what it is that you've done to offend God. This would have been this lady. This would have been her life. She couldn't go to temple. She couldn't go to synagogue. She couldn't interact with people. No one would want to be around her. No one would want to touch her. No one would want to come into her home. The only person who would have had a worse life of isolation and loneliness than this woman would have been a leper. She's in that category of person. And so you can imagine, right? What was she like emotionally? what would you be like emotionally cycle i mean hey we've we've had to be quarantined and kind of you know social distancing and separate from people for just you know a couple of months you know 6 8 weeks now something like that and we have all the technology and we have all the ways that we can stay connected at least to our immediate family and to one another and so our quarantining as bad as it has been Imagine if there was just no, you could have no relationships, you could have no interaction, and you had been living this not for eight weeks, but for 12 years in this kind of existence. I mean, you can imagine what this had done to her. Her life was dominated by loneliness, by Isolation by fear and uncertainty due to something that was not her fault. It was a medical condition that she could not treat. And so the consequences of this are huge. And you see how this has shaped her life and how she has to live her life in the way that she approaches Jesus. You, you kind of have a walking, talking illustration here in her approach to Jesus in verses 44 to 46. I mean, put yourself in her shoes. How do you approach a rabbi, right, when you are ceremonially unclean? I mean, you're talking about the person in society who wants nothing to do with you, does not want to interact with you. That's exemplified in the rabbis, right? They don't want anything. They can't be around her, touch her, right? So put yourself in your shoes. How do you approach Jesus, who was seen as being this rabbi, and, and hopefully get some help? Wow. You know that, uh, you know her fear had to be off the charts, right? The uncertainty and and fear and the nervousness, and you see it in the tentative way and and almost a secretive way. I mean, it is a secretive way that she approaches Jesus, right? It's off the charts. She doesn't have friends. Remember the story of the guy who was crippled? and he was in a bed and he couldn't walk and what his, he had friends who you know break through the roof and they lower him down to jesus they get their friend before jesus they they advocate for him she doesn't have any friends or families to plead her case to to bring her to jesus or to make it possible for jesus to interact with her. her her lot in life is loneliness it's shame deep shame so how do you come to a rabbi like this well you see what she does here and you can see the fear, the uncertainty, and it's justified. I bet you this woman had gone to rabbis before. The rabbis were kind of, when you had an ongoing malady, you, you, know, you would go to your rabbi. And rabbis were known for their home remedies, right? And then they were bizarre. For, for a situation like this, uh, here's one of their home remedies. Uh, go burn an ostrich egg, right? Take the ashes. And put it into a bag. Now, if it's wintertime, it has to go into a linen bag. And you carry that linen bag around with you. Uh, If if it's summertime, it's a cotton bag. So apparently the season makes a difference. Or you might put an onion in your wine and drink it. What a waste of of good wine that one was, right? Um, Or here's here's my favorite one, uh, because it's just so disgusting. Uh, Go dig through donkey dung and find a kernel of corn and carry it around in your pocket. Okay, yeah, that's really gonna cure you know, an ovulation, right? I mean, this is what you get from the rabbis. No doubt she had been to the rabbis, no success. Remember, she's gone to everything. She's done everything. She spent her money trying to find a cure. So you know that even as she's approaching Jesus, there's uncertainty and fear in this woman. Am I once again gonna be disappointed? Am I once again gonna find it doesn't work? Am I even gonna be able to get to him? What if I can't get to him? What if he's my last hope and I can't get to him? And then, of course, the biggest fear is this. What if she's discovered within the crowd and they begin to ostracize her like they would a leper or someone else and demand that they be cast away and cast out and you know some form of social justice and this form of punishment takes place. So she's got, she's afraid of these things. And you can see it in her approach. So as the crowd is masked around Jesus, and this is on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount and miracles, and and so Jesus at this point is a rock star, right? I mean, he has huge crowds coming around him, and they're walking with him, they're pressed in on all sides, and there's this throng of people walking with Jesus, and to get to him is difficult, right? You see other accounts where lepers, for example, will stand on the side of the road and they'll shout out, Jesus! Jesus," And they'll try to get his attention over the crowd because it's so big. And so here's this woman, and I don't know, I kind of think maybe she, you know, you know, put something to kind of disguise herself a little bit, you know, maybe a shawl, whatever, to hide herself, you know, the the ancient world version of a hoodie, I don't know. But she, she makes her way secretively through the crowd. She weaves her way, presses in, you know, and and then she gets close to Jesus and she simply reaches out and she touches the tassel on the back of his robe. You see, the the men of that day would have uh, some tassels hanging from the fringe of their garments in a strategic place and she reaches out and she grabs that and the minute that happens, Jesus stops, right? He just stops and he says, "Who touches me?" You know. And Captain Obvious says, "Lord, people are pressing in on you everywhere. What do you mean who touched who touched you?" Right. But, but what's so neat here, if you if you look at this carefully, I think what's happening is Jesus stops. And if you read the words carefully, you know, everyone after, everyone had denied it. In other words, Jesus, I think all around him was looking at people and saying, did you touch me? Did you touch me? Did you touch me? Did you touch me? And he did it enough times. And people said no long enough until Captain Obvious says, Lord, come on. You know, you're people pressing you everywhere. What do you mean? Who touched you? And Peter says, the woman doesn't respond right away. Have you ever wondered why that is? Um, you know, there's trembling going on here, that word trembling. I think to a certain, I mean, obviously maybe she's a little bit afraid of, okay, am I about to get in trouble? But you know, I think something else is going on here. And, and, it's, and it's really wrapped up in this idea that what, when Jesus healed her, he immediately healed all of her. He replaced this deep, longing fear and lonely fear that she had was something totally different. I think at least in part, the reason why there's a, a pause there before she steps forward is because as we see, she knows I've been, I've been healed. I've been cured, right? Don't you think that if that had happened to you, there would just be at least a little bit of period of time where you were so stunned emotionally. I mean, think about what you would do if you had had that kind of a, a sentence passed down on you medically and it had so dominated your life for 12 years and all of a sudden you experienced a divine healing and you know that you're now healed from this thing. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm gonna lose my marble. I'm gonna start crying. I'm gonna weep. I'm just gonna be stunned for a little bit, right? I, I can't, I can't, you know, it's not like, oh, how about that? I've been cured. All right, what's next today? no. You're flabbergasted. And and so while there may be obviously a little bit of fear and trembling, you know, the trembling, the fear there is because of, oh my, I touched somebody. And I I think that what's going on here is is much deeper. And I think the key is when you see that she falls at the feet of Jesus. And and she professes, I'm the one that touched you. What you have going on here, guys, is, is worship. She's trembling. She's worshiping the lord jesus christ because she knew what had happened to her and that the only way that this had happened to her was because he was somebody different than all the other rabbis that she had gone to because she he had just gone through the sermon on the mount i can't help but wonder had she been on the fringes of that crowd listening to his teaching like another woman we're going to see in a moment And hearing in him and seeing in him and all the miracles that just that belief. Okay, is he the Messiah? He can heal me. He can touch me. I think this response that you see here, this is the response of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter six, when he comes And he realizes that he's interacting with God. He falls flat on his face, trembling, worshiping God. It's the response, I think, even of the disciples earlier in verse 25, when he comes to seize and they are, who is this man? And they they fall and they worship him. This is the response of Saul on the road to Damascus. It's the response of the apostle John in Revelation chapter one, verse 17. When Jesus uh, reveals himself to him, John says, I fell at his feet as one who was dead. This is that holy fear, that worshipful awe, the reverence that comes on someone that is provoked when we touch the master or are touched by the master. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You know, a lot of people during Jesus' ministry experienced healing, physical healing from him, but not everyone who was physically healed was, I think, spiritually saved and responds with worship and awe like this This response here, this is the the right kind of fear. This is the healthy awe and reverence that comes when you have stepped into the presence of the Holy One. This is the response of someone who has saving faith, the kind of faith that banishes Isolation and, and fear and uncertainty. And I think both of these are here. I think this woman wasn't just physically healed. She was spiritually saved and delivered and became a member of the covenant community. And the reason why you look at verse 48, in verse 48, when he says, your faith has made you well, that word well, it's an important word. It's the Greek word sozo. It's, it's used in the previous chapter in chapter seven, where we have a story. Again, a woman Another woman, similar to this, ostracized by, communi- by the community, a s- sinner, she's a, a prostitute. This was after the, the sermon, right after the Sermon on the Mount. Again, I, I, just, I hope to meet her. I, I know I will meet her in heaven one day, and I want to ask her Did you hear the Sermon on the Mount? Is that what motivated you to do what you did as a prostitute? You know, you go out, you buy an expensive bottle of perfume. And Jesus goes to the house of Simon the Pharisee and he's having a meal there. And Simon was not a very gracious host at all. He was arrogant and proud, disdainful towards Jesus. And Jesus is reclining at the table as was the custom at the time. And this woman crashes the party. I mean, she's a a gate crasher. She comes into his house and she gets behind Jesus at his feet And she bows down at his feet and she's weeping. And her tears are flowing down onto Jesus's feet. And then she takes the perfume and she pours it out upon his feet. And then she uses her hair to to clean his feet. What an act of just humility and worship. And of course, the Pharisees and the others at the party are disdainful. He's now been touched by an unclean woman, which makes Jesus unclean right? He's been touched by a prostitute. How could you not rebuke her? How could you not reject her? She's a woman of the night, a woman of sin. And Jesus uses that as such a wonderful example to show us who he is and how he's welcoming to those who are in need. And he tells this woman, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are sozo." Same word for healed, you are forgiven. Daughter, you are forgiven. Go in peace. There's no daughter relationship with Jesus. There's no son relationship with Jesus. There's no peace, there's no shalom. That's the word he uses. It's, it's total peace in the heart and the spiritual, emotional, physical realms, right? There's no shalom unless there's salvation unless the spiritual is also part of this story. And so this woman, I believe what happened to her spiritually, that even transcends what happened to her physically. This woman is such a great example of our church's mission statement. You know, We talk about bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in our broken world. And, and here's a woman, deep needs, evidence of how broken our world is, and, And in that story and in that mission statement, we find ourselves, right? We are people with deep needs. We are people who make this world broken because we're broken by sin. We look at this story and we see ourselves because physically, spiritually, socially, sin makes us unclean. It drives us to fear and uncertainty, and as a result, we can live our lives isolated and disconnected from other people. And part of our mission is to to bring gospel restoration. And when you bring gospel restoration, or you experience it yourself, or you bring it to others, people who are ostracized, who are lonely, filled with uncertainty and fear, disconnected from society, what you see in that restoration is connection. With others and community and relationships are reconciled. And most importantly, the relationship with God is reconciled. So, yes, Jesus, as we look at him in this story, it reminds us that he receives us like he received this woman, compassionately, with grace, healing us of the underlying causes of our brokenness. When we come to Jesus, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be uncertain. We don't have to continue living in isolation and fear and and even shame because we know that when we come to Jesus, we're not going to be rejected. We don't have to fear rejection. He receives all who come to him in faith. And so we can come to him with our deepest needs, whatever they may be, at any moment in time. And depending upon the situation, the needs are going to change. But what doesn't change is that we can bring all those deepest needs in faith to Jesus. We can bring the fear, we can bring the uncertainty to him, and he's not gonna reject us. He's not going to denigrate it, he's not going to downplay it. We can bring our medical frustrations, we can bring our social stigmas, we can bring our loneliness that is the result of unfulfilling relationships or maybe relationships that we yearn to have and we don't have, and they create a sense of anxiety and loneliness we can bring to him the discouragement that we sometimes feel because of repeated failures whether those failures are as benign as struggles at work or difficulties in our marriage or or sinful habits that we have and then the shame that comes with some of these things that we struggle with that's the consequence of of sin and we want to run from Jesus at those times have you ever done that you know, when you, you sin, you know you, you shouldn't have sinned. You know you shouldn't have done it. And you're reluctant to come to God. You're ashamed. Like, like Adam and Eve. And the, I mean, we replay that story so many times in our lives. And we're ashamed of what we did or that perhaps this sin has a, a stranglehold on us. And so we, we have to wait a few days before we'll come to, to Christ. And we don't have to wait. He's not going to reject us. We don't have to wonder. We come to him, like this woman, trembling. Our faith isn't pure. Hey, her faith was not pure. It's not the purity of your faith that matters. It's not the quantity of your faith. When I hear people on television and you know, healers and say, you know, if you have enough faith, I just want to throw something through my TV. That is so unscriptural. It's so wrong. It's not the quantity of our faith. It's not the the, the quality and the perfection of our faith. This woman came to Jesus and she was trembling the whole time. She's filled with uncertainty and fear. Her, she was not the paragon of faith, deserving to be in Hebrews chapter 11 like Abraham. She's like you and me. Faith that is contaminated with sin and emotions and everything else. But what was right about her faith wasn't the quantity and the quality. It was the object of her faith. The object of her faith was Jesus Christ. And church, that's what matters. Because the Lord tells us, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. You know, in this pandemic, our world is encouraging us to trust in so many different things. Tr- you know, trust in Dr. Fauci, right? Trust in Dr. Birx. Trust in science. We're encouraged to trust in all kinds of things, right? But nowhere are we encouraged to think about Jesus, right? He's just a, an afterthought. And, and while it's certainly... Not wrong to have confidence in science and to, to exercise prudence based upon what science has taught us. We don't trust science. Might be a great guy, but we we don't trust Dr. Fauci. We trust Jesus Christ. Christ alone. This is what makes it so important to see in this story. This woman was trusting and she was desperate and she trusted in Jesus alone. That is what's so important when it comes to faith. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith in Jesus plus science. It's faith in Jesus. Why is that so important, church? I mean, why should we be confident enough to put all of our faith in him? As, as polluted as it may be, as weak as it may be, as filled with unbelief as it may be, why in Jesus and Jesus alone? This week I was reading in my own quiet time from uh, this week in 2 Corinthians, and I came across just a verse that reminded me why. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, "'For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, "'that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor.'" So that by his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus faced the most extreme trials of isolation and loneliness a human could ever experience in order to provide us with salvation and to redeem us and to make us his brother's Why trust in Christ alone? Because he faced the temptations of Satan all alone in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. He experienced the isolation, the loneliness of the cross when God turned his back on his only son because of our sins. You know, those of you who have not trusted in him or those of us who maybe we follow him, but... In times of trial, we try to take matters into our own hands. This story is a great reminder. Our only hope of salvation, our only hope of deliverance in uncertain times is Jesus. When you go through uncertain times with Jesus, the uncertainty becomes certain because you know he's sovereign over whatever it may be. As we wrap up this morning, I want to leave you with just a thought. I I can't skip it because men of God that I greatly respect from past generations bring it out in their sermons. A couple of guys that I often look to from the ancient church are uh, John Chrysostom and Augustine of Hippo, or as we know him as Saint Augustine. So I look back to guys who lived 1,700 years ago and I read their sermons and I see how did they interact with a passage like this? And it was interesting that these two very famous, most influential, John Chrysostom in the 300s and Augustine in the 400s, in this passage, they both brought out a, a similar idea. There's an implied warning. There's an important warning in this story, right? Augustine says it like this. He said that, you know, Jesus is pressed by many, He's touched by few. And the the point that both of these men are making and that the passage is reminding us of is that we can press in on Jesus. We can press in on his church. We can surround ourselves with biblical community. We can surround ourselves with wonderful worship. We can participate in the activities of God and his family and his church. We can give ourselves over to the mission of our church. We can be pressed in in all kinds of ways, interacting with Jesus, but never touch Jesus. Never make it personal. Never make it real. Young people, listen to me. It's really easy when you're raised in a Christian home, when you're raised in church, to be pressed in and part of the crowd that presses in around Jesus and his kingdom and his church, but never touch Jesus. There's an implied warning here for all of us that the knowledge that we have of Jesus isn't just a a head knowledge or some kind of vicarious experience through others, our parents, our church, our friends. It's to be a personal knowledge at the level of the heart where we recognize our uncleanness as the result of sin and that our only hope is to touch Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at this story. Lord, I pray especially this morning for those who perhaps have pressed in but never touched Jesus. Maybe children and young people in our church that perhaps I baptized them when they were were infants, but Lord, they've yet to acknowledge their sinfulness then repent and trust in you alone, Lord. Would you give them a heart that yearns to touch you? Would they see that you are the good Savior who will not reject them? Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in our church during this time of uncertainty. Would you strengthen our faith? Would you grow it? Would you help us to... Have a more pure faith as we see the things in our lives that perhaps we're relying upon from day to day under normal circumstances to bring us comfort and security and significance. And may we see through this time of pandemic, the idolatry that exists in our lives that affects the purity of our faith, purify our faith, increase it, Lord, make it stronger. Most importantly, Lord, remove anything that competes with you that we might trust in. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.